Habakkuk, chapter 1, starting our series tonight in the book of Habakkuk. Father, we ask tonight as we turn our hearts now to your word, that you, Lord, would minister to us. Lord, as we look at this man who wrestled with you, Lord, I know that some of us here tonight are in that place, wrestling with you. Wrestling with your will, your plan. Lord, I pray that you would teach us. And Lord, that you would begin a work tonight of molding us and shaping us. As we would turn our hearts, Lord, to your word. And allow your spirit to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The name Habakkuk means wrestler. And Habakkuk was a man who wrestled with God. Now, when I was in high school, I I played a lot of sports in high school. But one sport that I wasn't real interested in doing was wrestling. I just didn't like the little suits that the guys, you know, had to wear. I just couldn't get into that, you know, and the idea of, of, you know, that, that whole thing. I just didn't like that. But there was one wrestler at my high school that I really admired. His name was, was Daniel Thomas. And this was a guy, he wanted to be an Olympian. And he trained hard. This guy, I mean, he had this rock-solid body. It was 0% body fat, and he was always running, he was always doing sit-ups, and he was always lifting, and he was always training. He worked harder than any other athlete that I knew in our school. I mean, this guy was, was a stud. And yes, there were many times that I thought, gosh, I wish I had that guy's body, you know. I thought that. I wish that at times, but, but I wanted the body, but I didn't want it at that expense. I didn't want to put that kind of work into it. Well, since then, now that, you know, I've uh, been with the Lord for a while and walked with the Lord, there have been times when I've looked at another believer and, I, and I've thought, you know, I wish I had their walk. I wish that I had that depth. I wish I knew the Lord like that guy. Or I wish I knew the Lord like, like that girl. But at the same time, I've wondered, do, do I, would I have really wanted to go through what they've gone through in order to be in that place? You see, when you go through the Bible, one of the things that you find is most of the great men and women of the Bible... Most of the great men and women throughout the history of the church have been those who have wrestled with God. They've been those who have had their time of wrestling with with God's will and God's plan in their life. You take Jacob. Jacob was a wrestler. Now, he starts off in his life wrestling against the God's plan and God's will and, and really the, the desire to just let God lead and fulfill his promise in his life. And so Jacob is this guy who's the, his name means supplanter, deceiver. He was the heel catcher. He was the guy always trying to make things happen in his own strength, and his own ingenuity, all the while, you know, wrestling with God and wrestling with God's plan until he finally comes to this place where he's literally wrestling with the Lord. He thinks it's an angel. And just so God can let him know 
that he has nothing on him as it's almost daybreak and Jacob is holding on for dear life. And he says there to the Lord after they've wrestled all night in this really physical battle, so to speak. The Lord was just kind of playing with him. But he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the Lord's like, oh, yeah. And the Lord touches his hip and throws it out of socket. But it was at that moment that finally Jacob, the wrestler, becomes this broken man. And God says to him, your name is no longer going to be Jacob, but now it's going to be Israel. Israel means a man governed by God. Moses was a man who wrestled with God's will out there in the desert. David was one who wrestled with God's timing as a fugitive. And we could go on and on through the scriptures of looking at men who wrestled with what God was doing in their lives. But you know what? They, they, they became better for it. And in a certain sense, I think the Lord likes the heart of the wrestler. Now, not the person, and maybe some of you are in this place tonight, who is wrestling with really surrendering their heart to the Lord. Not that. The Lord, he doesn't like that type of wrestling. But that wrestling, where we come to that place where we're just, you know, in that place of of just really wanting to be real with God. I think the Lord hates when we are phony, you know, as Christians. Or we just kind of go through the motions. Oh, praise the Lord. And I had a guy today. It was a crack up. I saw him before service and he said, I said to him, hey, how you doing? He says, I'm doing great. And I saw him later on and uh, in the day. And he says, you know, what? I lied to you today. I was doing horrible, you know, and and but so often we're that way. Oh, yeah, you do? oh, I'm doing great. You know, and we do that with the Lord. Oh, praise God. I love you, Lord. And, and inside we're wrestling. We're battling. We're, we're struggling with what is going on. And I think the Lord really likes that heart that isn't, you know, willing to just settle for the status quo, but is in that sense of just God. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, there's a sense in my life right now where I just feel kind of discontent and I just want all that you have for me. That person whose heart hungers for God and hungers for his will, who says, God, I want to know what you're doing. And I want to go where you're leading. Well, Habakkuk was such an individual. And this book gives us a a unique dialogue, a, a unique insight into a dialogue between this prophet Habakkuk and the Lord. It's not really a message where Habakkuk is preaching to the people, but it's a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. And and here he's, you know, this man where he's wrestling with what God is doing there in the nation. Let's begin here in verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, he says, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? And even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Habakkuk was writing here during a time after the nation of Israel had experienced a revival under the reign of King Josiah. But the revival is now only a distant memory. And there in the the nation, immorality is rampant and their king, the current king was wicked. And Habakkuk is here crying out to God. but, But he feels like as he's crying out that his cries are falling upon deaf ears. In fact, the the second time that he uses the word cry there in verse two, it's really the word scream. And in essence, he's saying, Lord, how long will I cry and you will not hear? And how long am I going to scream and you will not save? Have you ever felt that way? 
you don't need to raise your hand, but, but how many of you have felt that way before? Like you've cried out to God and you're like, you know, God, is he, does, he, does he hear me at all? You feel like as you're praying that yet your, your prayers weren't penetrating the ceiling. And you thought to yourself, Lord, I'm crying out to you, but why aren't you listening? Yes, it's true. Probably all of us a time or two have felt that way. But the truth of the matter is that God always hears. That he is the God who hears especially the cries and the prayers of his people. But the fact of the matter is, is he hears everything. In fact, he hears more than probably we would like him to hear. He hears the dumb joke that you told that you shouldn't. He hears, for those of you guys that are married, the way that you snapped at your wife or at your children. He hears all of the harsh words. He hears the crabby attitude. He hears it it all. But most of all, he hears the cries of his people when they pray. But you know what? Our problem is this. Too often, when we pray, is that we don't wait for God to answer. We don't wait for him to speak. We have a tendency, and although we wouldn't necessarily, you know, say this outright, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, come right out and, and, and say that we would do this. But in our minds, we do this in our subconscious. We'll say, OK, God, you've got 10 minutes. We pray. And it's like, OK, you got 10 minutes. You've got two hours. OK, God, I'm going to give you two weeks. And and then it's like, OK, God's not answering. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to take care of this myself. And we don't wait for God and we get ahead of God and, and we fall right on our faces when we do that. And we find ourselves completely distraught. Well, Habakkuk is in this place. He's crying out to God. And, and, you know, perhaps he had spent some days or some months preaching and calling the people to repentance, but to no avail. Maybe those of you are parents, you, you, you go, you've gone through this with your, you know, with your kids. That you talk to them and you're speaking to them and you're reminding them of things. But it's like it goes in one ear and out the other and you find yourself exasperated. What am I going to do with this child? I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my rope. And God says, it's about time. It's about time you've come to that place. I remember when I was the youth pastor here at the church. First starting out many, many years ago. And we had this group of kids in the high school group as we were just starting. And, and there were some kids in there, and it was a group. It's not like, you know, we have an awesome group of high school kids uh, now. But when we first started, they, they were rough. And a lot of them, you know, they, I don't think they're, you know, they came from parents that were maybe new in the Lord. And these kids were just, just really carnal. And I remember on the, the nights we'd get together with the high school group and we'd come there into the meeting we were meeting and they'd be talking and it was, you know, who likes who and who, you know, did this. And it was just all this just, you know, fleshly, just, you know, kind of stuff. And and uh, a lot of the kids were just involved in a lot of, you know, immoral type of things. And and I remember just in my heart just being grieved. And in my own personal devotional life, I was reading the book of First Peter, and I was really touched by what Peter, you know, talks in there about the, the about holiness and our need to be holy. And I and I thought, this is what I need to do. I need to preach, you know, through First Peter. I need to t- teach these kids about the the holiness of God. 
And so we began to meet. We were meeting there on Tuesday nights over at the, the old rec center, by the, the, which is now the Wave. And we used to meet there on Tuesday nights, and the kids would, you know, come out. And I remember I walk in, and it's just the same, you know, kind of conversation as they're getting going. And then, you know, we'd have a little bit of worship, and I'd get up and preach. And I was expecting every week, and I was coming in, I was expecting I was going to preach, and they were going to be in tears afterwards, you know, just on their knees and just broken. And, and I would preach, and, and I'd pray at the end, and it was like I didn't say a thing. They'd get up, and as soon as it was over, they're just right back in the same conversations and doing the same, you know, type of thing. And after about three weeks of this, I was just perplexed. I remember going home that night and sitting there in my, my apartment and just crying out to God, just saying, God, I, I, I can't reach these kids. What am I going to do? I was ready to walk in the next day and give Brian my, you know, letter of resignation and say, I'm the wrong guy. You know, I can't, you know, God's not using me to reach these kids. And I was just totally just perplexed in my heart. And I'm crying out to God, I can't reach these kids. And, and he says, you're right. You can't. But I can. And he said, here's the problem. You're telling these kids how bad they are. And they know how bad they are. I want you to tell them how much I love them, how much I care for them. So we went back the next week and I said, you know, we're done with first Peter. We were only in the second chapter. I said, we're done with first Peter. You know, we're, we're going to study the gospel of Mark. We need to look at Jesus and, and God did a work. And each week we just began to look at the Lord and see, you know, his heart towards these kids as he deals with there in the gospel of Mark, Jesus ministering to different people. And we looked at how we're like these people and, and God began to touch these kids. And as the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's exactly what happened and what took place. And so wrestling with the Lord can be a good thing if it if it leads us to the end of ourselves. And I wonder how many Jacobs are there here tonight that you've been wrestling with the Lord. And God tonight wants to take you who are a Jacob. You've just you know, been wrestling with his will and with his plan and wrestling with that surrender. And he wants to take you that, that, that you're a Jacob and he wants to turn you into an Israel this very night as you would just surrender to him. That you would become a man, a woman governed by God. So Habakkuk is crying out to God and he continues in verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, and there is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk looks at the situation around him, and he says, there's no justice. You know, we could say the same thing concerning our justice system. It's in shambles. Criminals today have more rights than the people that they hurt. Consider this story. 19-year-old Carl Truman of Los Angeles won $74,000 in medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with his Honda Accord. Now, Mr. Truman apparently didn't notice that there was someone at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. Here's the guy, you know, trying to steal his neighbor's husband. The guy doesn't see him. He starts backing up, runs over the guy's hand. The guy sues and he wins $74,000. Or take this guy, Terrence Dixon of Bristol, Pennsylvania. He was leaving a house that he had just finished robbing. He was leaving by way of the garage. And he, and he went out into the garage and he wasn't able to get the garage door to go up since the automatic door opener uh, was broken. And he couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and the garage locked when he pulled it shut. 
Now, the family that he was robbing was on vacation, and Mr. Dixon found himself there locked in the garage for eight days. He existed living on a case of Pepsi that he found in a large bag of dry dog food. (laughs) Now, check this out, though. He sues the homeowner's insurance, claiming the situation caused him undue mental anguish. And the jury agreed and awarded him $500,000. It's crazy. This one's the best of all. (laughs) Merv Gazansky of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, purchased a brand new 32-foot Winnebago motorhome. On his first trip home, having driven onto the freeway, he set the cruise control at 70 miles an hour and calmly left the driver's seat to go into the back and make himself a cup of coffee. (laughs) Not surprisingly, the RV left the freeway, crashed and overturned, and Mr. Grzanski sued the Winnebago for not advising him in the owner's manual that he couldn't actually do this. (laughs) Now, check this out. The jury awarded him $1,750,000 plus a new motorhome. And afterwards, the the motorhome company, they changed their manuals on the basis of this suit, just in case there were any other complete morons buying (laughs) their recreational vehicles. But here's this guy, you know, he thinks that he can just set the cruise control and go get some coffee. You know, it's ridiculous. And he wins, you know, and, and, and if that isn't bad enough, you know, you consider the fact that the average killer in the United States uh, justice system will spend 22 years in legal proceedings that are going to cost taxpayers $1.8 million before he's ever executed. Our justice system isn't working. There aren't enough jails for the, the criminals. They, they get sent back on the street. Too quickly, which is one reason that the suicide rate among police officers in our nation is four times the rate of the general public. The police are outmanned. The police are outgunned. And they're trying to to function in this system that doesn't work. And the result of that is they find themselves frustrated. That's how Habakkuk felt. He looked at all the immorality going on around him, all the injustice. And, and he said, Lord, how long are you going to wait? And we could say the same thing. We look at our world and we say, Lord, how long are you going to wait? We see these countries, you know, that are stocking up, you know, the, the nuclear weapons. And we see all the unrest in the world. We see another suicide bombing yesterday in Israel that claimed the lives of, you know, 18 people. And we see these things happening and going on. We see the spread of pornography and we say, Lord, how long are you going to wait? But why does he wait? Second Peter chapter three tells us that the Lord waits because he desires that none should perish. But that all should come to repentance. And that's why he waits. That's why he allows these things to go on. Because in his heart, there are still people that he wants to see come into the kingdom of God. And he wants to use us to reach them. That's why we're still here. That's why we're still in this place. And so God is waiting. Well, in verse 5, as Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord. In verse 5, God answers him and He says, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it were told to you. The Lord comes to Habakkuk and he says, don't accuse me of not of not working. 
Don't accuse me of of not doing anything. Habakkuk, I am working behind the scenes. And if you could see what I was going to do, what I'm doing, it would blow your mind. Listen, that's the word from the Lord for some of you here tonight. You're looking and you're thinking, Lord, how long? Lord, how long am I going to have to wait? Lord, what are you doing? And his word to you is, you know what? I am working. And if you could see what I'm doing behind the scenes in your life, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't be able to contain it. It would literally blow your mind if you could see what I'm doing on your behalf. But you know what? What he's doing might be very different than what you would hope that he was doing. What he's doing might be different from what you would think would be the best thing for you. I shared a little bit this morning about how when I was in college and I was dating this gal named Sue, a girl named Sue. And, uh, <laughs> and for eight months, we'd been seeing each other. I thought we were going to get married. And people were telling me that she would make the perfect pastor's wife. And we both were in the ministry up at Costa Mesa. And, and she was kind of the head girl counselor in the high school group. And I was the head guy counselor, you know, in the high school group. We were kind of like Christian and Jolene, I guess. And, and, and you know, we were in that place. And they were saying, man, she's the one. People were telling me that. But as I was praying and seeking the Lord, I would take walks every morning and I would walk about two miles. The first mile, I would talk to the Lord. The second mile, I would listen. Okay, God, speak to me. And every time on the way back, when I would say, okay, God, speak to me, he would say, Sue is not the one and I just want you to be friends. Couldn't be be the Lord, you know. That was bad pizza from last night, you know, and... and, uh, and the next day, you know, it'd be the same type of thing. And, and God would speak to me and, and, and he kept telling me, she's not the one. And I didn't want to hear that. In fact, I came to the place where I, I kind of, you know, quit listening on that way back. I just prayed the whole time. I just talked. It was a one-way conversation with God. Okay, God, here's all my needs, you know. Don't talk to me. I don't want to hear what you have to say type of a thing. And it was interesting is, is uh, right after that time, Brian, I, so I first came on staff down here. And one of the first things that, that we did was we went up to uh, Twin Peaks for uh, a family camp. And I was up there and I was working with some kids and I needed uh, somebody to lead worship. And there was somebody that, uh, that I knew up there that, that happened to know this gal from Oregon who was up there at the camp. And she had just finished Bible college and she happened to lead worship. And she went up to this gal, Denise, and said, hey, my friend needs, uh, you know, somebody to help him lead worship. Would you, you know, mind helping him? And she said, no, that'd be great. And so she came and the very first day she came and led worship with the kids. And, you know, and we had a just a neat time of worship. And I taught. And afterwards, we were going to go check out this water slide that we wanted to take the kids down there in Lake Gregory. And on the way back, we were talking and and, and all of a sudden, you know, I started telling this, this gal about, you know, I'm really, I'm, you know, I just went on staff down at Calvary Vista and I, you know, I'm dating this gal. I think we're going to get married. And, and then all of a sudden I started telling her, but you know what's really weird is, you know, for about three months now, I feel like God's been telling me she's not the one. And as soon as I said that, I thought to myself, why am I telling this total stranger my <laughs> most intimate, you know, uh, feelings and stuff? And it was really interesting because... She said this to me. She says, you know what? She says, all I would say to you is this, is that find out what God 
is telling you and do it. She said, because I was actually, she says, I was engaged once to somebody that the Lord told me that he wasn't the one. And, and, and so she said, I would tell you, you know, to find out what God is, is telling you and, and to do it. And I was just like going, whoa, you know, what's the deal here? And so um, the, the next day, uh, Richard Semino comes up to the camp and, and uh, he asked me if I would go back down on Wednesday and take the high school group at Costa Mesa that night. And so I went down, we were showing these Josh McDowell uh, movies uh, on evidence for your faith. And this movie was supposed to be this whole thing on prophecy. And, and, and in the middle of this whole thing on prophecy, all of a sudden, Josh McDowell starts talking about, you know, when he was in college, he was dating this gal named Paula. And she was, everybody was telling him she's a perfect pastor's wife and she's the one for you. And God was telling him, you know, that she wasn't the one and, and that he had somebody else for him. And Joshua was wrestling with this and saying, oh, I don't want to hurt her feelings. And Lord, what am I going to do? And, you know, everybody, everybody else likes her, you know. Why don't you like her, Lord, you know, type of a thing. <laughs> and, and he was just going through this whole wrestling in his heart. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, first of all, I'm supposed to be up in the mountains right now. I'm not even supposed to be here. This is supposed to be on prophecy. Why is he going into this whole thing about this relationship thing, you know? After the thing was over, we're walking out. And one of my best friends, Todd Lauderdale, who's over at Calvary Marietta now, he says, uh, he says to, to me and the scal Sue, he says, you guys are going to be just like Josh and Paula. I turned around, I looked at him, I'm like, why did he just say that, you know? And he was just kidding, but I'm like, going, you know, what's going on here? And that night, you know, Sue and I went over to my parents' house, and we're talking, and she says, you know, what'd you think of that movie? I said, oh, I thought it was pretty good. And, and uh, I said, what'd you think of it? And she said, oh, I thought it was good, too. It kind of made me think about me and you. I said, really? It did? Why? And, and she said, you know, I don't know. But she said this. She said, you know, I just would pray that if you ever felt like Josh did, that you wouldn't wait to tell me, but you would tell me right away, you know. I started crying. I was just like, you know, I, I'm like, I, 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 I've been feeling like this for three months. And we broke up that night. And lo and behold, Brian would end up asking Denise, the girl that played music from Oregon, to come down here to Vista, um, you know, a month or two after that. And we'd end up getting, getting married. And, you know, it's one of those we live happily ever after type of stories from there on out. But, but, you know, it's interesting how the Lord works. And we can find ourselves, you know, just wrestling with him. But what does his word tell us? We wrestle with his will. Lord, is that really your plan? But he tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. In Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord declares in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And God would, I think, seek to remind us tonight that He's always working. His thoughts for you tonight are thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He loves you so much. And he's always working. He never sleeps. And you may not understand what he's doing right now, but he has a plan and he's working. And he has a purpose there in your life. Well, now the Lord is going to let Habakkuk in on what he's doing a little bit here. Let's pick it up in, in verse 6. We read there. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. They were mean and nasty, that means, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They were aggressive people, in other words. 
And they are terrible and dreadful, and their judgment and their dignity proceed from them. And their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. And their charges charge ahead, and their their cavalry comes from afar. And they fly as, as an eagle that hastens to eat. Meaning, that what the Lord is saying here, these guys are strong. They're swift and they're strong. And they all come for violence and their faces are set like the east wind. And they gather captives like sand and they scoff at kings. They're prideful, scoffing at kings. And princes are scorned by them. And they deride every stronghold for their heap. Uh, up earthen mounds, and, and they seize it. God tells Habakkuk here what he's about to do. He tells him here how he's going to work, that he's going to bring the Babylonians down, and they're going to judge Israel. And now Habakkuk, when he hears this, is really perplexed. He really is kind of taken back. The, the, you're going to use the Babylonians to, to judge us? And Habakkuk here is going to question the Lord's decision based upon three arguments. We see the first in verses 12 and 13. It's based upon the holiness of God. Let's read here. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk is basically saying, Lord, we might be bad, but these guys are a lot worse. So how are you going to use them to judge us? It doesn't seem right within your holy character that you would take. Habakkuk knows. He knows the heart of God. He knows the holiness of God. He looks at Babylon and goes, these guys are are destined for judgment. So, Lord, how are you going to take them and use them to, to judge us? Lord, I don't I don't get that. And so, first of all, he bases his argument on the holiness of God. Secondly, his second argument is based on the helplessness of the people. Verse 14. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook and they catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are Glad. Habakkuk's point is that, that Judah would never survive an attack from these savage Babylonians. To the Babylonians, life was cheap and prisoners of war were expendable and people were like fish to be hooked and sea creatures to be trapped. And, and so his argument is, God, how can you allow the weak people to be invaded by such a heartless and ruthless nation? His third argument is based upon the haughtiness of the Babylonians. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, they sacrifice to their net, and they burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay the nations without pity? 
Are they content, going to continue to be merciless and in other words? And, and so the third or the prophet's third approach was to point out that the Babylonians, they lived in, and, and they worshipped the way that they lived and they worshipped, that their God was power and that they trusted in the, their, their mighty military machine. That was their net. And they were just, you know, gobbling people in it. That they were arrogant and self-confident and they were merciless. And so how could God honor them by giving them victory over Judah? But here's the thing that Habakkuk needed to remember was that for 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah had warned the people of Judah. For 40 years, the prophet Jeremiah had begged them to turn back to God, but they refused to listen. So now God was going to go to drastic means to get their attention. And God will do that sometimes. He'll go to drastic measures. He'll do the unthinkable sometimes to get our attention because he loves us that much. You know, now he he was going to eventually and he knew God knew destroy the Babylonians. But right now he was going to use the Babylonians to be the very thing to draw his people back to him because the Bible tells us whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he doesn't want to lose us. And so he, he'll allow us to go down that road so far. And then he'll say, you know what? You need discipline right now. Because his desire is, is restoration. And so first of all, Habakkuk is, is wrestling. In chapter 1, he really doesn't get an answer to those arguments. It's just wrestling. And he's wrestling, first of all, because he feels like God isn't doing anything. And then secondly, he's wrestling because of what God is going to do. And, you know, I think the biggest challenge for all of us in our faith is when we find ourselves in that place where we just don't understand what God is doing. And that's when we really begin to wrestle. It's that's where we really begin to, to, to struggle. But it's in those times that God would say to us, trust me, just trust me. And know that my thoughts for you outnumber the sand. Trust me that I am doing a work in your life and in this time that if you understood it, if you saw, you know, right now, all you can see is this part of the the journey and it looks pretty bleak. But boy, up ahead, it's going to be glorious. So just trust me and cling to me. In chapter two, that's what Habakkuk does. He goes from wrestling and wondering to waiting and watching. And the result is God gives him vision. And he gives him direction. And that's what we want to look at in our study next week. But tonight, that is where we want to be. Every single one of us. Maybe we've come into this place and we've been wrestling. Wrestling with our future. Wrestling with God's will. Wrestling with surrender. To the one who, as Seth so beautifully pointed out, bled for us from seven places. All to speak to us of how much he loves us. And how much he desires to cleanse us and work in our lives. And tonight, what the Lord would say to you is, I want you to cling to me. I want you to hold fast to me because I'm going to hold fast to you. I want you to come to that place tonight where you quiet your heart and wait upon me and watch and just trust that I am going to work. And maybe tonight in this time that we're going to have in just a moment where we worship and just kind of wait upon the Lord, you need to you're in a place where you need to realign your heart and say, God. My eyes, as we were talking about this morning, it's your eyes have been focused on on the overwhelming odds. And the Lord says, I want to get your eyes back on me. 
And I want you to trust me. I want you to look to me. I want you to wait upon me and believe that I love you and know that I have what is best for you. And tonight, the Lord wants to minister to your heart as you would do that. That tonight you would transition from being one who's maybe came in here as as one who was wrestling and wondering to one who now would watch and wait. And that you would say, God, speak to me. Lord, here's my heart. Make me tonight in Israel, a man, a woman governed by you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that when we don't understand what you are doing in our lives so often, when we find our hearts in that place of wrestling, in place of wondering, that, Lord, we can know that we need to turn back to your truth and what your word says, that, oh, you are for us and that you love us. And you have that which is best in store for us. And so, Lord, tonight as we come into this place, in this time to just worship you, to wait upon you, that, Lord, you would have your way in our hearts. Lord, I pray tonight that there would be those who would make that transition from being a Jacob to being an Israel. That their life tonight would come under that place of being governed by you. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.